Verse 14, But Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed them. And for the first time, he's not going to say something dumb or stick his foot in his mouth and every, or say, that doesn't make sense, Jesus. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. That doesn't make sense. He's going to connect dots. And there's no way that anybody in about five minutes can connect all these dots and quote scripture and talk about how they've been fulfilled unless something truly supernatural had happened. And so now he begins to connect dots. You men of Judah and all of you who live in Jerusalem, know this and listen carefully to what I say. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. Now his first thing that he does is he deals with the drunk accusation. And the drunk accusation is, it's impossible for any of us to become so drunk by nine o'clock that we would be sounding like we're babbling or idiots or that kind of stuff. It takes way longer to become that plastered, okay? And that's a fact, right? Maybe one, like maybe Jimmy down the street who's like always in the bottle, but not this many people, not this many people. So first he deals with logic of their things. But this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. So he quotes Joel, Joel chapter two. In the last days, it will be God. It will be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams and even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy and I will perform wonders, wonders in the sky above and the miraculous signs in the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke and the sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood and before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Peter, remember just a few days ago, he was like, what? This doesn't make sense. Like, no, geez, you can't go to the cross. I will go with you. And no, no, no. And what the Holy Spirit like is. And now he's like, Joel chapter two, boom, quotes it, makes connections. This is the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he does is he addresses the accusation that they're drunk, and he uses logic. Now he begins to explain the supernatural event that they're seeing with the supernatural words and prophecy of Christ or from God of the First Testament. Now he takes them to the Word. Now he can take them to the Word because we're in a Jewish world right now, and the Jews embrace the Word. We will not see this necessarily at the very end when we're in the other most parts of the Roman Empire with Gentiles. Okay, When we're in Athens, Paul will not use the word of God. He will use logic. He will use their religion. Then when they're ready to say, oh, they're sung into this, then he'll begin to use the word. This is important. When you're speaking to an atheist, do not use the Bible to prove them wrong. They don't believe in the Bible. Use what they believe in, and then when they're like, oh, that actually makes sense or something to that, then you bring the word. Okay, then you bring the word. Now, I'm not saying that if you do use the word or whatever, God's like, well, you didn't do it the right way, can't use that. I'm just saying it's not always the best logical, most effective task and tool to do things. And so he uses the word and he explains. He says, what you're seeing right now is that. Look, you saw this wind come rushing in. Look, you see this fire coming down. Look, you hear us speaking in tongues. This all matches up with 
Joel chapter 2. We know Joel chapter 2 really well. Every Jewish boy has to have read these in the synagogue at one time or another. Like in Awana, we had to memorize these things. Okay? And so you know this stuff. Look at it. Look at what you're seeing and pay attention to what you have read and been taught from the word. This is the day. You can see with your own eyes. Now, what's interesting is he goes into these cosmic things. The sun turning blood red, earthquakes, and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, wait a minute. There's this huge argument among Christians. Has this been fulfilled? Is it yet to be fulfilled? Is this the first day and second coming of Christ? I think this has all been fulfilled. Because Peter is quoting Joel saying, this has been fulfilled. What you're seeing is happening. Now you're like, wait a minute. Is that all happening on that day? No. But it did happen. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake. So severe that it broke open tombs and raised people from the dead and they began to walk around. It's so severe that it ripped the veil in the temple. The veil was about four stories tall and about uh, like, like wider than your arm length wide. And it was 18 inches thick. Have you ever tried to pull the curtain back at the Ohio Theater or something like that? Or even just your school theater? It's heavy. 18 inches thick, that's heavy. From four stories up all the way down, that's a pretty significant supernatural event. And there was an eclipse and the sun went red. Peter is saying, remember that day? It happened. It happened. Now, I know that we're like, oh, but we want to take everything so literally. Okay? But go back and read the prophets. They talk about things. The sun standing still and and everybody being wow. Metaphor. He's quoting prophecy. And what you need to realize is that prophecy is mostly metaphor and figures of speech. Right? When David is writing in Psalms and the prophets, and he says, My bones are wasting away, and I'm drowning to death in my tears. Is that literal? No. You're like, if you cried that much, (laughs) your bones don't waste away, right? The earth laments, and the olive oil cries at what Israel has done. Is that literal? That's how the prophecies work. They're, 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 They're poetry. And when we come to poetry, we don't take Edgar Allan Poe literally. We don't take Emma Browning literally. We don't take Emerson and Thoreau literally, right? We know it's poetry. It's metaphor. It's figure of speech. That's what the prophets are. Now, is there a literal meaning behind it? Yeah. If I say my wife and I watched the sunset, that's not literal. We did not watch the sunset. None of you have ever watched the sunset. Okay, because the sun doesn't go down. It doesn't set. Okay, to be literal, my wife and I sat on the circumference of the earth as we rotated backwards and the sun slowly disappeared for our view. But that's not as romantic, right? Put that on a Hallmark card. Okay, so um, the reality is, but is there one literal meaning behind that metaphor and figure of speech? And does everybody know what I mean and there's no confusion in the context of our culture? Yes. And in that way, I do take the Bible literally, that there is a literal meaning that should be clearly understood by all people who understand this language and that culture. But it doesn't mean that every little phrase and every word is a literal way of being used. Does that make sense? I don't think we should interpret poetry literally. However, this did happen literally, but not in a cosmic, literal blood, the moon going blood red. 
But did it look like the moon was going blood red? Yes. I've seen the moon look like blood. And I think what Peter's saying is, you've seen this. You've seen this. It doesn't do any good to quote something that's going to happen at the end of Revelation when the second coming of Christ comes to prove to them that Christ has fulfilled things. It's happening. Now, could there be some later, greater, eschatological, last times thing that is going to be repeated again in Revelation? Heck yeah. But is there something that's already happened in some sense or form that they can see that Peter is using as an argument that Christ is here and Christ is God and the Holy Spirit has come? Yes. And I think that's important. Be very careful about taking the word of God and pushing it too far in the future because then the arguments fall on a people that don't even exist yet. The point of communication is to communicate to people, not to communicate to people that haven't been born for thousands of years yet. Okay? He's proving to them at this moment that Christ is real and the Holy Spirit is real. He's not trying to make an argument for the people that are going to live at the end of the tribulation in the book of Revelation one day. Like, huh, I'm just quoting a few passages here. You don't get it. But one day these people, thousands of years in the future, will get it. Sucks to be you. Okay? That's not, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. Quotes this, and he says it's happening. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a very real historical figure from a very real place. A man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds. Deeds that you saw. The fact that you're all in Jerusalem right now, you either saw it with your own eyes over the last three years, or you are now living in the house of your brother or your sister or your mother or your aunt because you came from another country in order to come back to your hometown to have Pentecost, and they can tell you what they saw with their own eyes. And because so many people in your family that you're living with right now on your holiday has saw it, and they're so trustworthy, you know that their stories are legit. Wait, the wonders of Jesus that just happened a few months ago that you have either seen or family members have sworn to you that they've seen. And miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This man who you handed over by predetermined by the plan and the foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to the cross at the hands of the Gentiles. So now that Peter's address that we're not drunk. Then he's now explained the supernatural event with the supernatural words of scripture. He then now turns on him and says, this is all done by Jesus, who you saw how he was different with a power unlike anything you saw seen. And you killed him. You killed him. A Bible that doesn't convict does not change people. You killed him. But notice here, he puts everybody on the chopping block. You Jews handed him over to the Gentiles, who they killed. Jew and Gentile, you're both guilty. But he also says that God did this too. He says that God predetermined that Jesus be killed whom you handed over to the Gentiles, and then they made it happen. Everybody has had a hand for different reasons. God did it out of his love for you. You did it 
because you felt threatened by this Messiah and you're afraid that you're going to lose your power base. And it was better to kill God's Messiah than to lose your power. And the Gentiles did it because they could care less about right and wrong and they were just so annoyed with you. They just knew if they killed Jesus, you would stop nagging them. But you're all guilty. What's really interesting here is you have like predestination and free choice all wrapped up in this statement too. God predetermined predestination that he would die, but you chose to kill him. And you're like, which one is it? Are we predestined by God in order to do things or do we have free choice to make our own decisions? And God says, yes. (laughs) And he never tries to reconcile it. He never tries to explain to us. And this is why you have people on one side who are very passionate that they're right and they can make really good arguments because there's good scripture for it. And there's people on the other side who are very passionate that they're right and they make really good arguments for it because there's good scripture for it because they're both right. And what really blows my mind is I cannot explain to you how God is three beings with three separate consciousness, yet one God with one consciousness at the same time. Nor can I explain to you that God is spirit and the Holy Spirit is spirit only. But Jesus is God, spirit, and physical body. And he's a part of God who's not physical. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. And most of us know that. We can explain it with scripture, but when it comes to the logic and the metaphysics of it, we were like, I don't know what to do with that. And we accept it because scripture proclaims it and scripture is reliable. I don't know how it is that Jesus is perfectly 100% human and God at the same time without those two being mixed together and diluted and lost. And yet they weren't like half and half. Like this is the God side of him doing things and this is the human side. They weren't mixed. They weren't separate. He was 100% both. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how to explain it. My thoughts are not God's thoughts. And we know that that's true from the scripture, but we don't try to explain it. And then God says, I've given you free choice and I'm sovereignly over all things. And we're like, oh, I've got to explain that one. I've got to figure that one out. And if I can't figure it out, then it must not be true. It must be one or the other. What? There's so many things that we don't understand. And, and then my faith is not dumb or illogical or based on irrationality. There's tons of stuff here that prove to me that this is a legit rational thing. But there's also a certain sense that my rationality can only take me so far because my mind is finite. And the universe is so much... We don't even know whether cats see black and white or color. So how are we going to explain this? Right? Seriously. There's so much that we don't understand. And so I don't know. We have free choice. Peter makes it very clear that they chose to do this and it wasn't that they were forced to do it because what kind of a God makes you kill his son and then punishes you for it? They're being punished for a decision that they made, which means they have free choice. But yet God also predestined that this would happen. Just like Joseph says to his brothers, God brought me into slavery and you chose to hand me over. They're both involved. And somewhere these two ideas come up and join together beyond the clouds. And this is what we call paradox, where it seems like they contradict them each other, but they don't. And I just don't have the mind to really figure that out because we're finite. And that's what we must understand. There's this difficult tension 
that I don't want to just have faith based on no logic or reason or any kind of stuff because then I would just fall into any belief system. But I also can't require so much that I never really truly embrace the mystery of God and how he's beyond us. And right, everything's faith. Do you honestly know that you're sitting in this room right now? I mean, I'm going to keep you awake at night tonight, but (laughs) you cannot prove to me that you're actually sitting in this room right now. And we can talk about this later if you think you can do it, but I can refute you. Because every evidence that you have, I've got a reason for why that's not trustworthy. Okay, now I know like, oh my gosh, if you're like already in the angst moment, I'm sorry if I tipped you over the edge. But (laughs) the reality is there's a certain point where I have evidence before me, but in that last thread, I have faith. I have faith that this is, there, there's something real here. And that's a whole other conversation. If you want to have that, I can have that. But, um, but if you want to lie awake at night tonight, then there you go. Put that in your quantum physics pipe and smoke it. So this is the point that he's making. Here's evidence. You killed him. You're guilty. This is exactly how John began his ministry. You evil, wicked generation. You children of the serpent chaos. The axe is at the tree, ready to cut you down like God used the Assyrians and the Babylonians hundreds of years ago before the exile. He's now got Rome ready and axe ready at the tree. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And Peter starts off with saying, you evil, wicked generation, you kill God. But before you think that you had the power to do that, that was ordained by God. And now the axe is ready at the tree, and he doesn't say that, but that's the implication Repent. And he will say repent. Because a Bible that doesn't convict does not change. And it does not redeem people. And so he says, you killed him. Everybody's guilty. But God raised him up. You see, you were content to leave him in the grave dead. But God killed him because he was going to raise him up. Because he had something more planned. Having released him from this pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by its power. God is, Jesus, far greater than the power of the grave. The most powerful thing in all of creation is death and chaos. And taxes too. But those are the things that you can never ever escape. You can escape taxes, but you can't escape death and the grave and chaos. It is not possible to be held there. Then he's going to prove it again with Scripture. Notice how Peter keeps going back to Scripture. David Now, at this point, in verse 25, he quotes Psalm 16, 8. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He says, David says this, I saw Yahweh. In the Hebrew, in the Greek, it's kurios, the word for Lord. But if you go back and look up in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. It's the, the personal name of God. I saw Yahweh always in front of me, for he is at my right hand. So I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope because you have not, will not leave my soul or my life. The better translation there is the life, not soul. He's not talking about an immaterial, um, um, myth, um, ethereal thing inside of him. He's talking about life. Okay, this is the word nephesh and it means life. He will not leave my life in Hades. Now, don't think of Hades as hell. Hades in the Greek way of thinking was just the grave. In the Hebrew, it would have been the Hebrew word Sheol. And Sheol means the grave, where everybody goes. 
and they're gathered. This, when it says that and David was gathered to his fathers, it means that literally. They would have gathered his bones up and thrown them into the same coffin as his fathers, his family. Okay, and so it's the grave. The word Hades in Greek mythology just means the underworld, the place that everybody goes, regardless of whether you're obedient or not, da 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 whatever, that kind of stuff. God will not leave my life in the grave because you will not leave my great my life there, nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. My body will never experience decay. Not only will you not let me stay in the grave, you will bring me out of the grave so quickly that my body won't even have a chance to decay and decompose. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. So Peter says this, Brothers, I can speak confidently to you about your for, our forefather David, that, we, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, the tomb is still there in Jerusalem. You can go there, and the Jews will take you to where the tomb of David is. And they revere it and all this kind of stuff. And what Peter probably, probably could have pointed right to that direction. And probably within about like a two or five minute walk, everybody could be at the tomb of David. He says, Scripture is wrong if you take it this way. If you think this is about David, he died, he was buried, and his body's decaying. And if we open that thing up, there's probably not much there but dust. But we know that Scripture doesn't lie. We know that the Word of God does not fail. So Peter goes on and explains. So then because he was a prophet and knew that God, David wasn't technically literally a prophet, but the fact that God was speaking through him and he was writing things down that are now included in Scripture, that makes him kind of a prophet in a way in Peter's mind and many other people. God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. So now he goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised I will make a covenant with you, David, and I will never abandon your house like I did Saul. I will never judge you and condemn you to be outside the covenant like I did Saul. One day I will keep you going until you have a descendant who actually sits on the throne, the actual throne of Israel, and rules over everything in the way that God intended. So then he quotes that and says, God made that promise. So let's connect dots. David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to the grave, nor did his body experience decay. So Peter says, look, David knew that God promised him that he would have a descendant one day that would sit on the throne, like the ultimate throne, the throne of Israel. See, Genesis 49 promised a king would come one day and bring kingdom. And then Numbers came along and said, this kingdom, this king will be so great and so powerful that not only will he rule over Israel, but he'll crush all the heads of all the people around him and rule the world. That's the implication. We talked about that last week. So then David's promise that a descendant will sit the throne of Israel in a way that no one ever has. And so David, in his meditation, then now looks at the fact that God speaks to him and says, I promise you, I'll never leave you decay." So David goes back to Genesis where it says that the scepter will come to Judah and it will go from one son to the next son until it comes to whom it belongs. Now that doesn't mean literally implicate that like all. But if it's going to come to son to son to son to son until it comes to the one whom it belongs, the implication is going to stay with him forever. Well, how can it stay with him forever if everybody dies? David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starts connecting all these dots. 
And he says, in the way the ancients thought that my son is an extension of me. I live forever through my son, and I live forever through my grandson and my grand-grandson. They don't know DNA, but it doesn't take a genius to look at all these people and say, you act like your dad, you act like your grandpa, you look like your dad, you look like your grandpa, right? And you even do the same profession as them, unlike today in America. Putting all this together, he says, you're not going to leave me in decay. And Peter says, the word of God is always right. And the word of God always comes true. And the only way that this works is Jesus. God did not leave him there. He was only there for three days. And then he was resurrected. That's what David was prophesying. That's what David was looking forward to. On a secondary level, David's not talking about himself because he's talking about Jesus because David did decay. But an implication of that is if all those prophecies are true, and then the prophecies also talk about the Messiah resurrecting the dry bones and bringing them back to life, then David could also say, and I will truly not be abandoned in the grave. Yes, I might actually literally decay, but I will not be abandoned to the grave because one day my descendant will resurrect me. First level is not about David, but in a second way, it kind of is about David because he's in Christ. And Jesus is the only one that can fulfill that. And so he says this, 